welcome and good morning. Good to have everybody out today. So, last week um, we saw that idolatry, which is what we've been talking about in, in February in our small groups and in my lessons, uh, we saw that idolatry is essentially uh, worship gone awry, worship gone wrong. But that's one way to, to look at idolatry. It is to ascribe too much glory, to use the language of Paul here in Romans 1. Romans 1, 18-25 is basically... Uh, and even further than that, beyond verse 25, is uh, talking about idolatry and how, how pagan you know, gods arose throughout history. It's kind of a, a, a survey of that process. And you'll notice that one of the things it says that uh, people do when they worship idols is to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So one of the ways we can commit idolatry is to try to reduce God, put Him in a manageable shape, a shape that we can control and um, exploit for our own uh, needs or to placate our own fears or you know, to ask for victory in war or a good harvest or fertility in our culture or whatever. But we put God in a shape, the shape of mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things, etc. Another kind of idolatry, a more fundamental, more basic kind, is what verse 25 says, sort of summarizing the whole process. What it is, essentially, is to worship and serve the creature, some created thing, rather than the creator. And that can be anything from, you know, a bald eagle to your girlfriend, to your automobile, to your job, to yourself. Because all those things are created. Kind of, what do we know that isn't created? God. So instead of worshiping the creator, the creator, we worship the creature. And that's, that's what idolatry is about. And since we tend to love most what we attach the most glory to, the most glory to, the most weight or substance or importance to, that's the thing we're going to love most and be most devoted to and most jazzed about. Well, then we can understand idolatry to be basically love misdirected. It's getting our loves out of order, as we talked about last week, if you remember that quote from Augustine. Our heart is captured by merely good things. And maybe they're really good things, but they're not the supreme thing. And that's what idolatry is. We worship the gift rather than its giver. All right? Well, the point, the point of today's lesson is to see how destructive idolatry is. And I, I think that's what this image, I mean, I just got it off a of Google image search. I think it's a, a fragment of an idol laying on a beach somewhere. Somebody at one point in history thought that was, you know, what their hope depended on. And now it's a shard of, of you know, ornate pottery that somebody crunches under their feet as they walk along the beach. And that's a metaphor, I think, a symbol for where idolatry ends up. It is destructive. It is futile. It is vain. And it's very destructive for those who participate in it. But here's the problem. Everyone participates in it. And I don't just mean some other, some them. We are idolaters on some level. Every human being is an idolater on some level. The Bible says that we are all universally sinners. And sin is ultimately the decision to trust something else, to trust someone else besides God for your needs, for your well-being, for your sense of fulfillment and meaning, for your salvation. And, and so all sin is idolatry, really, if we back out a little bit and don't get too 
you know, wooden and literal in our kind of thinking here, too pedantic. Sin is ultimately a decision to, to, to put your hopes on someone else or something else. Friedrich Nietzsche said, there are more idols than realities in the world. That, that's how you know, prolific we are in the creation of idols. And in the final analysis, the only thing that can drive our idols out of our heart is being captivated by a higher love. A higher glory. You're not going to willpower it out. This is what Daniel was talking about on Wednesday night in our Bible class. You need some other love that just becomes so much more captivating, so much more compelling that you lose interest in the lesser things. And that one thing is Jesus Christ. But it may also help a bit, and this is what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes, to sort of take a deeper dive and a, a, a more... Uh, a more thoughtful look at the dynamics, the trajectory of idolatry. That, you know, so we, we want to kind of go uh, beyond idolatry's showroom floor and get back in one of those back rooms where the sales rep hammers you. And we want to look at the fine print. <laughs> idolatry's got a really good showroom floor. But it doesn't stop there. You're on a, you're on a, you're on a trajectory with it, with that idol. Where does it take you? Let's look behind uh, the, the packaging, the glossy packaging, and expose the trajectory, which turns out to be a very tragic one, in our lives when idolatry goes unchecked. So first of all, idolatry changes us. To the extent that you and I love something, are devoted to something, are trusting in something other than God, you need to know that you're going to be changed by that. There's a process that you commit yourself to, unwittingly or knowingly, but you're committing yourself to something, and, and, and it's going to have consequences in your own life, your own character. Look at Romans 1 again, verses 21 through 22. Notice what he says. Some, something's happening to these people as over time, over the generations, over the span of their own life, they are trusting idols, trusting in a creature rather than a creator. Uh, you know, ascribing the glory that is due God alone to some, something on earth. He says that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, verse 21, but they became futile in their thinking. Notice that. Something's happening to their thinking. Their ability to think and process things is getting warped. And it says their foolish hearts were darkened. So this isn't just they're consumers and they're in charge and they pick this thing up and they shouldn't pick it up. They should put it down because it's bad. No, it's, it's changing you on the inside. Something's happening to your heart and to your thinking, to your insides. As you, you know, uh, find your identity in an, in an idol or commit your trust to an idol or look to your idol as your deliverer, your savior. Something is happening to you. And you'll notice further in verse 24, he says that God gave them up to these lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So God is, and this has to pain God to the very core of his being to watch the people made in his image go a different direction but because he created us as as volitional beings we have free will we can choose to love him or not and that's an act of love in itself for god to say i'm going to have a being that can choose right 
we're not robots. So he, he has to give us up to that trajectory. That is a chilling prospect to me. You are being changed every step you take, every decision you make, everything you think about, every feeling you have, you are being formed. And we are, one way to put this is to just say that we are all, every one of us here, every human being God ever made is in a continual process of becoming. You and I are becoming something as we speak. In the world of, of psychology and neuroscience, this is called neuroplasticity. The known thing has been for decades, but there's more and more you know, ways to, to flesh this out and find out more things about it as time goes by. Um, but basically it's the idea that what you do, your behavior, uh, what you take in, what you allow yourself to experience and to fixate on uh, mentally, all of these things are continually changing your brain. I think sometimes we have this idea, and it was an idea probably that science would have supported, you know, 100 years ago or something, that your brain is just sort of an inert container. It's like that pottery thing you're going to plant, uh, you know, uh, tomato in or some herbs in, and here in a few, you know, in a couple months. Can't get here fast enough, for my, in my opinion. I'm already, like, itching to get in the dirt. Um, I'll be over that by about June 30th. You know, like, when's fall coming, you know? But anyway, you've got this, this container. It's this hard container with these impermeable walls, and it's either got good content in it or out. You can dump it in, dump it out, but it's inert, and that's your brain. And I read an analogy uh, this, this blogger uh, used in talking about neuro neuroplasticity. No, it's more like a garden. You know how gardens are always growing things, either things you want them to grow or things you don't want them to grow, but they're not going to not be growing. If, if it's got fertile soil and sunlight and rain and it's the summer, it, it's moving one direction or the other. And new connections are being formed in your brain. These synapses, these neural connections are always being uh, formed. And so your brain, depending on what you do and what you take in and what you feel and, your, and, and focus on, is continually responding. It's rewiring according to the choices you make. So your desires, your hopes, your fears, your habits, your values, even our attention span. God help us. About that long, right? There's studies on this, and it's getting shorter. Um, did you know you can do something about that? It's getting shorter. That's just the way. No, you can do things about that. And that's the beauty of neuroplasticity. These things are continually in flux. It's called Hebb's Law. There was this guy back in the 40s, I think, named Donald Hebb's, who basically said the neurons that fire together wire together. So when, when you engage in patterns of thought or patterns of behavior or feelings, you know, you respond with a certain set of feelings every time a certain stimulus happens and you're in this, sort of this pattern, you can't get out of it. It's, you literally have a brain that has been rewired to do that and make that the easier thing. Another analogy would be you've got rain coming down, hitting a hillside, you know, a mountainside, and it's going down. If there are grooves along the side of that mountain, where's the rain going to flow the most? Well, it's going to get in those grooves because that's the path, of, you know, the easy path. What happens when it rains more and more and more each time? Those grooves get deeper and bigger and wider. It becomes even easier for the rain to go in those. Those are our habits. We call them habits. But you can go either direction with this. And basically, Paul is saying that, you know, and he, he does this over and over and over, we have to be careful about these things. In Romans 12, just a few chapters later, 
He appeals to them based on the grace of God, the mercies of God that he's been talking about for these 11 chapters, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind, what the Bible would also call your heart, right? Guard your heart, for everything in your life flows out of it, Proverbs 4.23. Why tell us to guard our hearts if your heart is just this, you know, pot that can never be changed? No, your heart's malleable. It can be shaped. You have a, a, a responsibility, I have a responsibility to guard it. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21 in the Sermon on the Mount, Pay attention to where you're laying up your treasures, for where your treasures are, there your heart will be. Your heart, your affections, what you want, what you desire, follows that you, it's being shaped. We shouldn't think of mind and heart in the Bible as you know, brain and, and the ticker. It's just your inner core, your identity, who you are. And you know, not looking at the physio physiological part anymore, just this idea that, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, 2 here, we change ourselves by changing our minds. And here's the scary thing. This, this process of transformation, this becoming, this neuroplasticity, for that matter, it works the other direction, too. Those bad habits, those grooves that go take you the wrong place, that take you away from God, that take you further into fear and anxiety and hopelessness, they get bigger and easier. That becomes your default path. And I think idolatry has a lot to do with that. Look at Psalm 115. There's something really interesting, and, and again, very chilling in my opinion, said here by the psalmist. He's talking about the folly of idolatries. I'm picking up here in verse 4, 115, verse 4. Their idols, he says, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Look how futile and vain they are. He says, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but do not see. You know that you can... Picture the craftsman carving out eyes on a stone image or a wooden image and then bowing down to it. How silly that is. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, these are inert, inanimate chunks of matter <laughs> that people are thinking is their hope. And then notice verse 8. This is the chilling part. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When we trust in idols, we need to know that we are becoming, not like God, but like that idol. We're becoming as powerless as these powerless idols. Our lives are, are becoming more and more empty, vacuous, vain, futile, just like the idols that we've lifted up in the place of God. In Isaiah 6, in Isaiah's inaugural vision, remember what he says after he's received grace you know, from the, the tongue, the coal off the altar with the tongues from the angelic being. If you remember all that, he sees God and he's con convinced he's doomed and God pardons him and then says, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. And then God gives him his mission and basically is you're going to go to a people who is so uh, just consumed with idolatry. It's pervasive in their culture, in their hearts, in their lives. They're just so far gone from me. There are people who have ears and can't hear, eyes who can't see. It basically evokes the passage we talked about a minute ago, or this one here, rather, in Psalm 115. So they are becoming, they have become very much like these powerless, inert 
idols that they serve. And we need to know that over time, if we're serving idols, trusting in idols, we are becoming like them. They, this changes us. One quote, and we'll move on to our second point. A little book by uh, G.K. Beale called We Become What We Worship, which is basically just a, a, a close study of all the texts in the, in the Bible on idolatry. He writes this, God has made humans to reflect Him. But if they do not commit themselves to Him, they will not reflect Him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. At the core of our being, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the Creator, we're made in His image, we either reflect His image, or something in creation. Idols resemble the, uh, I'm sorry, idolaters resemble the idols they worship. They become as spiritually void and lifeless as the idols they, they commit themselves to. What people revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or for restoration. Something to think about, a sobering thought. Secondly, idolatry not only changes us, it ultimately leaves us unfulfilled. It leaves us wanting. It leaves us unsatisfied. Because whether we know it or not, what we're really after is God. Not merely the things God can give us. Back in the 17th century, there was a, a Christian writer, a very famous now named Blaise Pascal, French, who, uh, you know, connected with the scientific revolution in Europe, but also writing about um, faith and, and the quest for God. And in a very famous passage, which is somewhat long, I, 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 he, he makes a really important point that I want to uh, make sure that we, we talk about today. So bear with me through this, and I think you'll see its value. 1670, or something like that. Uh, late 17th century, Pascal wrote this, All men, see if you see yourself in this, all men, all women, he would have said today, all people, seek happiness. That's what everybody's looking for. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive toward this goal of happiness. The reason why some people go to war and some avoid war is the same desire in both just interpreted in two different ways. They still both want happiness, they just disagree over what's going to get them there. This is the motive of every act of every man, even of those who go out and hang themselves. And yet, after such a great number of years, in other words, human history, no one without faith has reached the point to which all continually look. Nobody's found happiness except people of faith, he's saying, even after trying it for millennia. All men complain. Women are thinking, I'm glad, you know, this is the one upside of patriarchy. <laughs> Women complain too. Not my wife, but everybody else, <laughs> or my mom, everybody else. Or my daughter, oh, goodness, none of y'all complain. Right. I'm connected to everybody. So, um, no, all of us complain. We know that, right? That's what he's saying. Like, if everybody's happy, they've been trying it for millennia to seek happiness, what's going on with the fact that everywhere you look, everybody complains? 
So let's pick it up again. Princes and subjects, they complain. Noblemen and commoners, doesn't matter your class. Old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions. A test which has gone on so long without pause or change should convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good, happiness, joy, by our own efforts. So then he asked this important question. This is what we want to think about. What then does this craving, what then does this craving and, 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 this, and, and humanity's helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains are the empty print and trace. There was once in man a true happiness. It's gone, but there is this trace of it left in every human breast. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. We know we, we're supposed to be, have a, a, a more deep joy and happiness. So we, we try to fill ourselves with everything around us. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. The hole in your heart is so, it's of such a character. It's so infinite that nothing finite, no created thing can, can, can fill it. So Pascal's the one who really gets credit for this idea of, of a God-shaped hole in our heart. He didn't put it that way, but that's conceptually what he said. So God is the ultimate. Here's the problem. And God blessed us with all sorts of wonderful things. But we treat those things which are not ultimate. They're merely penultimate, or at least some of them are. Some of them aren't even that. They're like way down the chain. We treat those as ultimate. What do we try to fill this hole with? Well, I'll just stick a bunch of cool gadgets in there. Get a lot of money. Square peg, round hole. Oh, I don't care about that. I, I just want people to like me. Right? I, I want to be approved. I want to be validated. Doesn't fit. I don't care about any of that. That's for weaklings. I want to be in control. I'm going to be in charge. I don't want to be needy or dependent on anybody. Power, independence. Doesn't fit, does it? Doesn't fit that hole, because that hole is a different kind of you know, vacuum, you might say. What about romantic relationships? Boy, this is a biggie. I would say this one, and this is, we're all different. This is penultimate to me. And I, I, have, I have Ephesians 5 on my side, by the way, where Paul said that marriage images forth the gospel. At least I got that. What do you got if you believe one of these other ones? No, all of them are blessings, you know? But it doesn't fit the God-shaped hole. Another penultimate one for me would be that. Your family. How many people make an idol of their family? Next week, we're going to talk about how we identify our idols in the last sermon of the month on worship gone awry. But notice that none of these fit the God-shaped hole in our heart. Psalm 24 that we looked at briefly last week does something interesting. It moves seamlessly from this observation that every created thing, every blessing that God made, is in, in fact that, a blessing that flows from God. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
There's nothing you found yet. Wow, this is really fun. This is exhilarating. Wow. Nobody knows about this. You don't think God knows about that? You're the, he's the reason you like that. He wired you to like the thing and put the thing in the universe for you. Make a universe yourself, right? Make a creature with certain desires and without another. None of that is a trick that surprises God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But notice something else. He quickly, he quickly uh, and, and seamlessly switches from this notation that, or this notice that everything in the world comes from God, every blessing comes from God, to this question of whether you and I, or who, is going to be in God's presence. So verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Who can be with God? You see what he's doing? God made all these wonderful things, but that's not the end all. It's being with God. It's not the gifts, it's the giver. The gifts are supposed to point you to being in His presence. That's why He seamlessly can go from the one idea to the other, because they are connected. As we've said before, romantic love and family and security and possessions and all food and all the things that we so seek and idolize are signposts pointing to God. And then he tells us who can stand in his presence. It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, verse 4, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. It's those who seek the face of God. As the last verse of our quote here in Psalm 24 suggests. So what's the point? The point is the blessings of creation should point us to the Creator. And that what is really worthy of our ultimate desire and devotion are not these penultimate gifts, but the ultimate giver. May we learn the lesson learned by King David, at whose disposal was so much financial and political capability, right? He had the wherewithal to try things at a, at a level that is orders of magnitude higher than any of us will. He's a monarch over a nation. And yet, here's what he says in Psalm 27, 4. Here's what King David found. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to, to, to inquire in His temple. May God quickly teach us what Augustine, who had so long chased his satisfaction in lesser pleasures, finally learned. And that's that only God can satisfy our fundamental restlessness. Here's what he said in Confessions. God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And so we do, we, we human beings, you and I, we all deal with a kind of existential restlessness. That's what sin does. We're, we're east of Eden. We're not in Eden anymore. And there is a fundamental restlessness that's part of being a human, a sinner, a finite being. And so we pursue these idols because we think they can satisfy this restlessness. They think we, we think they can quiet our hearts, that they can deliver us from our anxiety and, and bring us security or pleasure or fulfillment or meaning. And not only can our idols not elevate our lives to this higher plane, it's worse than that. The news is worse than that. They often actually betray us. They make things worse. They multiply human misery very often. If we follow that trajectory of trusting in idols far enough, 
We're going to find it backfiring and making us worse off than had we never done that before. Look at Romans 1, 29 to 31 here. Look what he says is the end point of these folks who refuse to have God in their knowledge, who worship the creature, some part of the creation more than the creator. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I want you to picture a world, you living in a culture where these are its salient traits. Like you read about, you know, in some brochure, oh, this country is known for this, this, and this. How many of you would move to this nation where this is sort of the culture, the DNA of the populace? Filled with manner, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. So just hatred is normal. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. How quickly can we book a ticket? They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They invent evil things. There's not enough evil in the world. We need more. Let's have an R&D department and a marketing department. Let's just get the evil out there. Spew it. They're disobedient to parents, the people that raised them, that gave them their lives, on whose you know, backs they ride through the world for most of their you know, upbringing, and, and then they, they turn on them. That's horrible. They're foolish, they're faithless, they're heartless and ruthless. That sounds like a wonderful world. That's the world created by people who thought this created thing was the answer, or that created thing was the answer. It's self-destructive. The idols turn on, the, on us and betray us. It's not just that they leave us unsatisfied in some ultimate way because they're not God, and they don't fill that hole that's in us. It's worse than that. Or there's something additional, I should say, to that. The reality is once uh, we, we ride that horse long enough, we, we, we notice it's, it's going off in the ditch. We're full of sorrow and conflict and anxiety. And I want to just try to make this real concrete with two or three examples, and then we'll, we'll stand and sing together. What are some modern examples of how our idols, our obsessions, our alternate objects of trust, salvation, transcendence, can betray us. I want you to think of the idol of romantic love. So boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, sexuality, you know, uh, Valentine's, you know, there's no rom-coms anymore, but when there were rom-com movies, you know, 100 years ago, by which I mean five years ago, uh, you know, this transcendent, you're my soulmate, that, that's that thing. I mean, and honestly, this will probably negate my man card in the eyes of a few here, but that's okay. Nobody can deny that romantic relationships are one of God's greatest gifts. That falling in love is a sublime feeling. You can act all tough like you didn't. Give me a break. I'll ask your people who knew you when you were 20, 25. But when somebody goes a step further and makes an idol of romantic love, and continually goes from one marriage to another, right? Well, that's not that funny. <laughs> one broken relationship to another, one marriage to another. Think of like uh, some of the celebrities that you hear about or maybe people you've known. Always in search of that romantic high. What's going to happen? They're, they're going to end up alone. They're going to end up in a tragic situation. And here's the irony. They, they actually attain less of what they desired than had they been content merely to nurture what they had. 
So it's a betrayal. You actually end up in a place that's the opposite of what you wanted, typically. Take uh, the idol of money or possessions. And there's nothing wrong with money. I mean, money is just the thing we use to get physical things we need. God made us physical creatures. He said it was good. We're, we have matter. We're not disembodied spirits. If God didn't care about money, why are there 2,500 passages in the Bible on it? It's one of the things he cares most about. Why does he tell Christians in, in ancient Israel to take care of the needy and people who are impoverished? He doesn't just say, well, they should be spiritual enough to not worry about eating. No, it's ridiculous. Jesus mocks that when he says, don't just say, be you warmed and filled, right? God made that need. So everybody needs some money to live, but how much is enough? How much is enough? When acquiring ever more possessions, ever more money becomes somebody's obsession, so much that they begin to sacrifice other good things for that obsession. Maybe they sacrifice their ethics. Generally, we're a good person, but now that obsession has caused them to cut some corners, to do a little cheating, fudge things a bit. Maybe what they sacrifice is meaningful time with their spouse, with their family. They're gone all the time. Or even when they're there, they're not present because I've got to take this call. I've got to take this call. I gotta take. You have to take all calls. <laughs> There's never a time when you won't take the call. So I'm third rate, fourth rate, fifth rate to your need to go follow your Savior. Money, the next opportunity, the next, next gig, the next possession, the next toy, the next trip, the next whatever. You are sacrificing an important, valuable thing that you yourself think is valuable on paper because you've become obsessed with this other thing, money, possessions. Maybe you begin to take unwise risks and compromise the principles of biblical stewardship that you once believed in because you're so needful to be the big guy, you know? The big woman, the, 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 the impressive one who has all these, these possessions and all these, this sort of business power. And ironically, again, this idolatrous pursuit of, of money may result in financial ruin. The loss of money. Why? Well, maybe due to legal consequences. The cheating comes back to haunt you or a bad reputation in the community. And so now you're, the spigot's dried up. Or maybe you lose your, your marriage. You end up in divorce because you were not present for so many decades. You know, um, protests and admonitions over and over to the contrary. You're like, no, this is, I'm good, we're good, we're good. And now you're paying money forever for a marriage, alimony and all that. Or maybe you're, you get collapsed because of the, the, the risk that you were willing to incur in your lust for more. So you see, it, it actually betrays the very thing you want. One more example, the idol of a perfect family. Who doesn't want a perfect family? You know, the perfect marriage, ideal children. Who didn't want all that? What if parents so want others to see them as the perfect family, though, that they begin to parent out of anticipated social impact rather than what's good for their own children? You know what I'm talking about? So basically you're thinking, husband and wife, the mom and dad are thinking to, and saying to the kids, either implying or saying explicitly, don't embarrass us. The way you behave, it's all about do you embarrass us? What would our friends think? And they're parenting out of that calculus. 
not necessarily from what's best for the, their child in each situation, in each de developmental season that the child's going through. Maybe it doesn't look sensible to everybody else, but you know what your kid needs. And you're doing this prayerfully and as biblically as you can, and you're asking good people who care about the Lord and have reared children well as well as people can, and you're doing everything you can, and it doesn't look right, but you don't care because you, you're doing, you know why you're doing it. You know who your audience is. It's God. But no, 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 no. You're concerned about the image of the perfect family. Well, guess what? Over time, that maturing child perceives that the parent seems to care more about reputation than relationship with you. And so the parent's relational capital begins to erode. And all of a sudden, there's this teenager, you know, fledgling adult, this boy man or girl woman who's like, you know what? I'm kind of done. I've seen how you are and what you really care about. And so what happens? The parents can end up with a worse family situation than had they not so idolized the perfect family, just been real and tried prayerfully to serve God in the capacity of parents. You end up with a worse, it betrays us. It will crush you. It has crushed you. It's crushed me. Have you not experienced that already? And at the end of the day, only God, the Creator, who made you and wired you and gave you this world to meet your needs, only He can be relied upon to uphold our best interests unfailingly. Nothing else can. Not even your wife or husband. Not even the love of your life. Not even your kids. Not even your best friend since childhood. Not the best trip, not the best job, not the best promotion, not the best financial portfolio, not the coolest car, whatever it is. The best vacation. None of that can be relied upon unfailingly to fill you up. All idols, however much they promise, will fail us in the end. I want to close with this quotation from Jonah 2, verse 8. I think it's interesting. From the belly of the fish, he says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is the word chesed, unfailing love that we've talked about so much here. To the extent that we regard vain idols, futile idols, what we're doing, by definition, you can't do both. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. It's one or the other. By definition, to the extent that we put our hopes in an idol, we are giving up the hope of God's unfailing love. That's chilling as well. Now, what happened after Jonah got vomited up from the fish's mouth? Was he, did, was he reformed? Well, he goes to Nineveh, kind of under duress, preaches to those idolaters. But he kind of chides God. The very last paragraph of Jonah is kind of a tragedy. He's inveterate. He's committed to his chauvinism. Why should these pagans have a chance? He's moping and pouting as the book closes. So he's obeyed kind of perfunctorily, but not in his heart. And that just says something. Here he is saying, oh, I get it. Idols are bad. They, they, they forsake, make us forsake the hope and steadfast love of God. And at the end, he's arguing with God. So that just is a picture of how we have to continually commit ourselves. Get our head on right every morning. Two or three times in the day, pray to God about this. Help, help us to see what's an idol and what's you, what's ultimate and what's not. Even if it's really good. 
and, and, and we're going to be in a cycle, you know, like Jonah, and, and we're going to have to revisit this over and over and over again, because we can go backwards even after we've gone forwards, just as he illustrates here in the book of Jonah. Thanks for your attention uh, today. Um, I hope we can see and that we'll think more and more about uh, how idols, uh, even if they're the best things in the world that God has made for us, if we rely on them, and maybe the ultimate idol is self. All these really are just manifestations of selfishness, the opposite of what Daniel talked about from Philippians 2, self-emptying. If we do that, it will result in a tragic end. And the only thing ultimately, that helps, knowing that helps, but the only thing ultimately that can help us rid our hearts of idols is to have our hearts full of Jesus himself, a greater glory, a higher love.